0: I always did a lot of things so like in high school for example I would both run Smash Brothers tournaments where we would we literally had a website, we literally did blogs, we had weekly tournaments, we had trophies made by this one dude who's like an engineering dude. We put like a golden controller on one and a silver controller on another trophy. You know, that my house is the Onwoody Way open. You know, you go to these two brothers who had one as the brother Brawl, right? And like we'd have logos for each tournament for each one and like keep these records and statistics all online. And I was like the commissioner for this whole thing, the Centerville Smash Society.
1: Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Today, we have a brilliant, interesting, and intellectually curious guest, Maymay Woody Way, and he is my friend. We actually went to law school together, and thankfully, he is one of the people who said yes when this podcast was just an idea. We actually recorded this conversation about eight months ago, and I'm just so excited to finally share his story with all of you. I would certainly say that Maymay is a multi-hyphenate. He is a founding member of Evisort, a successful legal tech AI company, and he actually helped build the company while he was in law school at Harvard through the Harvard Innovation Lab. He currently serves as the Executive Vice President of Legal and Business Intelligence at Evisort, and he also teaches a lecture course on entrepreneurship and innovation at Harvard with Evisort's CEO, Jerry Ting. His article, Africa and the Artemis Accords, a review of space regulations and strategy for African capacity building in the new space economy was published in a peer reviewed journal on space entrepreneurship and innovation. This paper actually led to some really exciting and amazing opportunities, which May discusses in our conversation. He is also the co-owner of the African Museum of the Metaverse, which was built by his sister Chinwe and Woodyway's company, NFT.io. And he is currently a digital nomad. He is fascinated by AI, space law, and innovation more generally on the African continent. And I am actually fascinated by Meme and his journey. Let's see, how do I describe him? He was a kind, fun, laid-back, busy 1L that I just loved seeing around campus. I was a 3L at the time, and he participated in a lot of extracurricular activities, so we saw each other often. But I had no idea that he was building a business. And Maymay was certainly different from other students in law school. He didn't have that same intensity and competitiveness that is often encouraged and even cultivated in law school. After learning more about his journey, I think it served him well. And I just can't wait for you all to hear his story, so let's get to it. All right, welcome Maymay. I am so excited to have you here on the show. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited as well.
1: Absolutely. So, everyone has heard a little bit about you, but I'd love to just really start from the beginning. So, if you could tell us how you grew up, Tell me about your childhood, maybe some of the attributes that your family members would use to describe you.
0: Yeah, cool. No, that's. I'm happy to, and thanks so much. So I was born and raised outside of Dayton, Ohio. I was born in Xenia, but mainly raised in Centerville, Ohio, outside Dayton. My mom is Ghanaian. My dad was Nigerian. And so I was born kind of in a mixed household from that perspective. There are actually very burgeoning, you know, Nigerian and Ghanaian communities within the Dayton area. And so although my school was, you know, predominantly white, I still had lots of, you know, African parties every weekend and and stuff like that. And so I was able to kind of experience uh, a lot of that as well. Also, both my parents speak French and had a lot of family from France, well, from French-speaking countries like Gabon live with us growing up. And so I ended up majoring in French and kind of spoke French. But because they speak Igbo, my dad and my mom speaks Sri and Ga, I wasn't able to really learn any African languages at home since they couldn't speak them. And so I had an older sister, a little sister. They probably just think I'm a uh, goofy, you know, and like kind of uh, just, just a, a fun guy. I had okay grades growing up. Like I'm I, I've got probably more debt than anyone else in my family. Like my little sister's a full ride. And, and so like I went to Ohio Wesleyan and, you know, I had to take out debt back in the day and like had okay grades. And then, you know, Ohio Wesleyan, really I like my freshman year, we won the, well, basically I was outstanding first year student. And then from there just had really, you know, solid grades, great uh, kind of opportunities and was able to go to uh, Harvard Law School after. And I'd also say like when I was in high school, My parents divorced and my dad moved to Nigeria at that point. And so I did have a lot of opportunities to kind of go to Nigeria and work there a few times. So, like, even my first work experience was at the Electoral Commission there. I worked at the, you know, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative at the Office for Trade Negotiations, which, you know, at the different times were just kind of me spending summers with my dad in Nigeria and Abuja, right? But of course, also kind of getting those kind of experiences as well. And so, yeah, that's 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 a lot. Me growing up kind of, you know, was in Ohio predominantly and then also until college. And then, you know, after college, went to Boston for for, for law school, in Cambridge and then went to Silicon Valley. After that, as you know, went to you know, Eversor, didn't take the kind of bar or anything. And then after about a year in Silicon Valley, when because I graduated in 2019 and the pandemic hit, then became a digital nomad, right? And so I haven't paid rent since you know October, 2020, and I've just kind of been you know bouncing uh, around uh, actually in uh, San Francisco, as we speak uh, for a conference later this week, so.
1: Okay, wow, very amazing. So much to unpack there. First, <laughs> I wanna start just with, you said you had okay grades, because I think sometimes people think when someone's in a successful position in society, that they were like this overachiever from the start. So, can you tell us a little bit about like when that? I know you said that switch happened in college. But why did that happen? How did it happen when you started to, I guess, win all of these awards? And do you remember that? Do you remember that <laughs> yeah, part? Yeah,
0: I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say, and you know, I had like maybe a three seven in, in high school, which I guess, you know, to me, my family, like anything that's not performing is like very da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, in college, it was a lot better. I mean, I always did a lot of things. So, like, in high school, for example, I would both run Smash Brothers, like, tournaments, where we would we literally have a website. We literally did blogs. We had weekly tournaments. We had trophies made by this one dude who's like an engineering dude. We put like a golden controller on one and a silver controller on another trophy. And we had logos like, you know, at my house is the On Woody Way Open. You know, you go to these two brothers who had one as the brother brawl, right? And like, we'd have logos for each tournament for each one and like keep these records and statistics. All online, and I was like the commissioner for this whole thing the Centerville Smash Society. We had like all this stuff, and it was just something on the side, right? And I got no academic credit for that whatsoever, right? But like that's just the kind of stuff I'd be doing. And simultaneous to that, those were weekly events that were like regular. I also did the same thing for FIFA, but that was maybe once or twice a year, but it would be like 40 people coming, sometimes 20, actually 30 more likely, but you know, everyone buy in we'd sometimes have a trophy, usually not, but it'd be like, we'd have seven TVs going at the same time at my house. And like all this logistics of having all these different high school students bring their TVs over, bring their consoles, make sure everyone had enough controllers, make sure, once you had money on the line, like people stayed the whole time, right? But like, it was just a lot of, I think, like organizational and like building experiences that we're not reflected in my gpa whatsoever right but i was just doing because it was kind of fun and i enjoy And i think about what building helping to build ever sort right the, the african museum of the metaverse that we're doing right now right and like all this other stuff i've done i think it's kind of a lot of that stuff but i feel like probably in college i took some of that and put it towards things that i got credit for and i think another switch was that you know i was a big soccer dude like i didn't really visit any college when i was even in high school like the only college i visited was Ohio Wesley, and the only reason I knew about them is because their track coach called me. And, you know, it was just like, recruit me for track. I never ran a second the of track there, but I did like soccer. We were actually state finalists in both soccer and track, to be fair. But my my senior year, and so when I actually went there for, and basically played soccer mainly my first year, and they a really stacked team, so much so that I only, like, any one freshman started, and I was, like, on the freshman team the whole year. And they won the national championship for Division three, And it was weird because the year, like I told you, the, the year before my high school year, we were in the state finals. It was, okay, I low-key called the national final because the team we were playing was ranked number one in the nation. We were ranked number eight in the nation. We were both, the same nation, Ignatius, and so we were both. The winner would have been ranked number one, you know, and we lost that final, right? And then the next year, I'm part of a team that goes all the way to the national final and wins, but I had very little to no part of that, right, whatsoever. Well, the year before, I was intimately involved and did not win, right? And then I realized, even though I sure was on the team that won the second year, I already had all those deeper experiences the year before. It's just the final game, and it's slightly different, right? But, like, that's not what it's about. It's about those experiences getting there, and I probably enjoyed more being on that team that lost and being, you know, scoring, playing every game versus, like, you know, watching from the back, you know, if I have a team that was successful at the end, right? And so I think I'd stop playing soccer at that point and I don't know if anyone who like has been a student athlete and stopped. I'm like I just have so much time now. That <laughs> I mean, like, yes, was just,
1: like, that I just... <laughs> absolutely. I, was like, this is so how I think that's is. why I
0: got better with grades because I'm just like I'm just sitting at home. Like I'm also doing my homework. <laughs> so again, like, I'm not tired or at the gym or like doing like practice or prepping for a game or like so yeah.
1: I love that. Okay, thank you for that insight because that makes a lot more sense when it comes to just your entrepreneurial side. So it's always been in you. You're running these big like video game tournaments and then also balancing school, playing soccer. So that makes a lot of sense. I would love to know just your entrepreneurial story, right? Because you did go to law school. So it's a bit unconventional. And so how <laughs> did you <laughs> So how did you get here?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so every sort was a lot of uh, serendipity on on my part, and that, like you said, I did go to law school at Harvard, and actually, I was did want to do an MBA at the same time. I just didn't get in. I actually, one of my bigger regrets. Is not going to the Olympics and but instead studying for the GMAT just to like knock it into any of the schools I applied to, you know. But that being said, so I did want to do business at the same time. Like I knew that that's something I wanted to have as part of my kind of you know training and skill set when going to to Harvard. And actually, frankly, had planned on reapplying for the JD MBA, my my second year of law school. But by then, never saw it was going so much. It's like I had the business school for the innovation lab anyway. I don't really need to get a degree here. So. When I got to law school, I was just very open to like opportunities that were non standard because I knew I didn't probably want to practice law. And so, actually, my BALSA, Black Law Students Association, mentor, Jillian, she actually, Jillian, you know, But anyway, she actually was a consultant at uh, McKinsey in Silicon Valley, you know, the year before. And so she was helping me do consultancy prep because, you know, they you have to do like those kind of interviews for consultancies that are quite unique and we don't really learn those skills in law school, so she was helping me out. and Of course, this is something that can only happen when schools are in person, so I'm glad things are back. But, you know, Jake and Jerry, who are CEO and CEO of Eversort, but also kind of two L's at the time, second-year law students, happened to walk by and they both did BCG Jerry and Jillian were actually co-chairs of consulting for the Harvard Association of Law and Business. And so when they saw another person who was interested in doing not law, they were like, oh, hey, how's it going? They actually, the way I met them was they gave me like a mock. I was a one all the time in my first semester, it was like November, right? And they were like giving me a mock interview, not a mock like case interview, right? Because it's always about like issues they're dealing with like early and ever. So, because I think only maybe a month before they'd gotten into the Harvard Innovation Lab, you know what I mean? Like officially and so and I think they incorporated that you know, around that time as well, and so afterwards they're like, you know, Jerry's like, hey, you know, we're actually looking to work with some data scientists at MIT and kind of build out the uh, this bring AI the contracts. You want to get some coffee and learn more? So we went and got coffee. You know, the next week and I learned more. And you know, to me, I was sold when he said, go to the Harvard Innovation Lab and work with data scientists because I'm like, yeah, I don't, care. I don't know if this company is going to do anything, but it seems like the right thing to do to be going to this thing called the Harvard Innovation Lab and working with MIT data scientists. You know. that I mean, so yeah, I was totally down and kind of officially joined that February. When there was only five people at, at the team, and you know now we have over 170 employees in the U.S. and Canada. You know, we're a kind of CVC company doing quite a uh, doing quite quite well, and so it's been a an incredible path. But you know, that's kind of how it how it started, and I would say that like also. When I looked at law school, I looked at it very differently, I think, than others. And I feel like we're all in this situation, probably if you went to Harvard Law, where we got full rides everywhere else, right? And Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. At the time, I know Yale's changed things recently, sure. But at the time, there's no merit-based scholarships whatsoever at the top three schools. But they also like have the best opportunities from like, postgraduate. Like You just step in there and you can go to any law firm, right? And there's a trade-off because you're going to go massively into debt. While like, at the time, for me, for example, like the fourth-ranked school, Right under those three, Chicago offered me like 15K a year. I'd be making like a Honda Civic a year. I would be making money going, right, versus going hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And so for me to justify that personally, I told myself, like, hey, if I'm going to go hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt to learn about the same laws that I would have had I made 15K a year. I don't want to end up at a law firm that I could have ended up at had I made that 15K a year. And so I told myself if I go to Harvard Law, I better do some Harvard shit, basically. And sorry if this is you now censored or whatever, you know. My brother,
1: I love I know that. The no. Uh, that <laughs> so. is amazing. I love that energy. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. That's my entrepreneurial story. That's kind of what drove me.
1: Yeah. And can you tell me about just the pain points or any of the challenges that you faced along the way?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with with Eversword, it's very interesting. I mean, I think we were blessed in that we did it as law students. And I think that the worst, I think the hardest part of starting a company is starting anything is that it literally isn't real, right? And so, like, it's just, like, that's a lot of, like, when you're trying to talk to people what what you do, because, you are know, America, that's all what you do, Lena. And so, like, you have to explain this thing that doesn't exist, explain why you're committing yourself to it over and over again. And you have to go for years meeting with the same people every day around something that doesn't make money and doesn't exist, right? And if, so, if, like, if that's the entirety of what you're doing, I mean, working in a law firm is really hard. I'm not saying that working in a startup is harder than working in a law firm, right? But a law firm, like people call, oh, you work in a law firm. You know what I mean? Like that external pressure and feeling is very important to your lived experience of anything, right? And so working in a startup is difficult because you're kind of exposed in the mid, like not doing anything for years on end, you're trying to build this thing, this thing you believe in, and people like snickering, all that, right? But I feel like because we were Harvard law students, feel that's what you're doing. Well, I'm a law student. Harvard. Oh, yeah, congrats. Oh, I'm also doing this startup. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that pressure was a little bit off, right? But I'd say the hardest part is really kind of that transition from It's probably when you probably get your first couple of clients, like going from like, what almost feels like a, a school project, right? You know, like hanging out, doing all this stuff, building tech, oh wow, the AI worked, oh my God. So like, you know, there's a company that exists and is like working on it. And then like now it's been very interesting kind of, because for me, this is really kind of my my first job. I know I'm executive vice president, you know, by the pounding team, right? But I had really only done internships beforehand and they were almost always like I said, governmental in Nigeria, right? In court kind of things, you know? And so like, I really not been very exposed to this entrepreneurial side of things, but it's just been really incredible. Just like when you, you know, when you're going through it, it's hard to even kind of, kind of take it all in and really understand what you're experiencing. But watching each phase of the company, when it's five people, when it's 10 people, when it's 20 people, when it's 40 people, we are 40 people going into the pandemic, right? We 4X since then, and now we're fully remote, right? And like going, from a place when we were all in silicon valley hanging out every day we got a laser tag together the whole company to now we're in 22 states and five provinces in canada and fully remote right and like you know i'm a digital nomad right and so like kind of managing that and kind of going through a pandemic and doing all these things while still building a business yeah it's a lot so yeah I, i honestly there's There's a lot of things that have been very kind of difficult in there, but I frankly do think like that first thing I said about that hardest part of the formation of the startup, I do think we're a bit shielded from that. I do think we're a little bit kind of blessed by that. And that's why I totally suggest folks kind of do things while they're younger and like in college. And I also say that another thing, I maybe hijacked your question a little bit, sorry, but another thing is people say, and it's true that like a lot of people fail in their first startup. Right. And like even our CEO, Jerry, he, basically done Grammarly for Grammarly before Grammarly, right? Back when he was in college, but then Grammarly happened, right? And then he, but he learned a lot of lessons from that. Learned about natural language processing technology, went to a law firm and saw, hey, everything you're doing doesn't make sense because it's literally 2020, right? And so like all that stuff. And so even though he failed that startup before, it gave him the insight and learnings to kind of do it better the next time, right? And so when I hear that people fail in their first startup, then just start your first startup earlier, Like, you know what I mean? Like that's the, I think the solution.
1: I love that. That's really insightful. And it is. It's good to be able to take risk when you're younger. You're doing it all. Wow. So what is, how do you do it? (laughs) What is your advice for people out there that might want to get into the startup world?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the same advice I have to people who want to get into like the crypto world. Um, on a blockchain, it's like, you know, it's really just got to just start doing it, start diving in like for crypto, you know, get a MetaMask, get a wallet, right? And for the startup world, if you want to work at a startup, right, and then, you know, there's lots of opportunities to work. We're hiring, right? Yeah. So lots of, I mean, the work decides and if you want to like build a startup, either kind of start ideating and thinking and kind of like maybe building something on the side while you're working, or there's an opportunity to kind of go full tilt and kind of you know dive in seriously consider it and, and think about it and kind of kind of plan it out i mean what of the you can create i mean like we said we were talking about before this about the creator economy right how you can just kind of create and how that didn't exist for we kind of kids where you can like go to a here's an example there's literally this dude i mean hey i think it is dude actually I, I spoke to him once who on facebook made this thing the one i saw was every frame of spongebob in order have you seen that thing It's literally, it's the Facebook page that does nothing but just like puts like a each millisecond of each episode of SpongeBob. And just like maybe over the course of like a week or so we'll just doing the whole episode. And it's just been like an interesting algorithm that goes through each time it's like the And each time there's hundreds of comments because Mm. people, million people see that image a couple hundred people are like, oh my god, I remember that. Oh my, when Patrick did this, and then there's a whole thing, these memes, and then it also creates memes. So now you'll see all these new SpongeBob memes coming out, there because there's literally millions of images that this algorithm's creating, and each time it's like, hey, and support me here, donate, and then like buy me a coffee, right? And like I donated, I actually donated like a good amount, so that was really cool. And so much so that they messaged me on Facebook, like, thank you. And I got to talking to them, and they're like, you know, this is just something I thought would be kind of cool, like a cool experiment to see if an algorithm could go through all the shows and like put. The images out there but then yeah people start sending me money and it's kind of my job now they <laughs> just send me set up like an algorithm they just do that for different shows it's just like you can really create something out of nothing and with this internet which I think we're still only scratching the surface of its impact right You only need to find something that's going to resonate with 0.001 percent of the entire world, and it could make you a billionaire, right? You know, like it's not about having something as general. Like when I think about the paper I wrote, we haven't talked about my space law stuff. I've been publishing a peer-reviewed journal on space law, and that paper went viral. And long story short, I ended up training the U.S. military in Alabama, being flown down there to teach them about space law, and like I was on this compare the space law panel. It's because my paper was about this, the Artemis Accords. Which is a really niche, but kind of super important, very recent change in U.S. policy towards space and how Africa should respond to it. And there was so few peer-reviewed papers on the Artemis Accords and absolutely zero about how Africa should respond to the Artemis Accords. And it was so specific and unique, actually, that that president of the National Space Society, who's a lawyer herself, when she posted on LinkedIn, and we weren't even connected, we were third degree. And she tags me saying, before we go to this webinar next week, you need to read this paper by Mamon Woodiwiss Because there's only so many space law p- papers out there. And there's only one about the Artemis Accords and, like, developing women's yeah, okay. right? And so Hold she's, on yeah. one
1: sec. This is crazy. I did not know this, number one. <laughs> number two, can you slow it down for a second for us and just break down Artemis Accords, what this paper is about? I'm sorry, I'm a, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little lost. I'm bad. a little lost. I was trying, to,
0: my bad. I was trying. To, I was trying to rush through some things. My bad. It was just. <laughs> it was really about how if you get super niche, you can kind of find that audience. Versus a lot of people just try to be broad, right? I That's see. the point I was trying to make.
1: And Maymay's point was certainly a good one. A niche focus can earn you visibility as you're building a business, creating content, or even writing for an academic paper. When you're too broad in your brand and messaging, it can be challenging to build an audience. Meime's focus on niche topics within legal tech, crypto, and Web3 have earned him notoriety at a young age. And if you want to learn more about his paper on the Artemis Accords, feel free to check it out in the show notes. After Maymay gave me some more background on his paper, I wanted to know more about the human behind all of this incredible work. And then I thought about his dad. Maymay lost his dad to COVID-19 nearly two years ago, about a month after I lost my mom. I reached out to him when I heard about his father's passing because I knew how lonely it could feel, especially navigating everything in the middle of a pandemic before we had any vaccines. In that conversation, we traded stories about the influence our parents had on our lives, and his dad just sounded like such an incredible man. After learning more about his dad, I could see how parts of his father show up in the work that Maymay is doing today. So let's take a listen to Maymay's reflections.
0: My dad, he really was an incredible man. He's done so much. It's really even. And this whole Wikipedia page if you if you wanna then learn more about the things he done. But I think definitely one big thing he did in one of his big works was a book called Afro Optimism. He actually coined the term, kind of in opposition to Afro kind of pessimism, which was kind of predominant at the time. And I do think, and of course I've read the book and then a lot of his works and a lot of his kind of thoughts in that perspective, but I do think that kind of positive outlook on kind of where things are going and that kind of general and kind of Continuous contextualization and understanding of a historic kind of framework on things, and just like what is now will not be forever. I think that's that's always been very important. And obviously, you know, although of course my parents are from Nigerian, Ghana, no, it wasn't really until he moved to Nigeria that I really began kind of having kind of deeper experiences on the continent and being able to dedicate time and work to kind of the development of the continent. And I definitely think when I mean what he. Kind of passed away. He was still working all the time. He was re-led a... He had a grant from the Ford Foundation to do this SDG, Sustainable Development Goals you know magazine that he was publishing regularly, tracking Nigeria's kind of uh, progress against those goals. He was on television a lot. He had, had TV shows at different times. He was like an editor writing lots of, he'd write different pieces kind of every week. I always share them on LinkedIn and stuff, just like about kind of current state of Nigeria and where things are going and then all this stuff. And so he also, you know, he worked right up until he kind of passed away and had all these things he was still doing all these balls in the air that he was still working on short medium long-term projects things he was building so yeah, you a know, really really amazing man and I, I definitely to your point think that when i think of a lot of things i've done and accomplished you know it's uh, of course very much in his image and with his uh, kind of support and even after his passing looking at him it's very interesting that you know after he passed away 'Cause you know, I wasn't really an academic in that. You know, I didn't even take the bar, right, or like do law firm stuff, right? But after he passed away, you know, I was then, a couple months later, published in a peer-reviewed journal for the first time, right, that space logic one Like, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I finished teaching, and now I'm a lecturer and part of the faculty at Harvard Law School and in the office, and I'm a secretary and all that stuff, right? And so all of that kind of progress of me into these academic spaces has happened since he passed away. I mean, you know, there's also, you know, I don't know how much people are kind of thinking about religion and stuff like that, but, you know, it could be kind of him uh, kind of moving on from that perspective. So, you know, definitely a broad impact in my life. Uh, in in life and in death,
1: I love that. I love that connection. It's so beautiful. Do you have any just final thoughts? Anything that you'd like to share with the guest on No Straight Path or with the audience?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, I just think you know, if you're if you're listening to these and you're thinking like, hey, how do I kind of get started on something? I'd say like really the information is at your fingertips, right? And so don't just keep thinking about who do I call, do I talk to? Like you have the capacity to kind of go and and get this stuff going. And then to the, to the young law school folks out there thinking about like non-conventional career paths and stuff like that, but I'm sure the broad this may be. I'd also say like, you know, law is inherently hierarchical, right? Like it's, There for every step, right? Like, you you know, the law schools are all ranked. The the top three, we were just talking about the T14. right when you get into them, like, your interview is basically what school do you go to? Great, right? (laughs) Then you, you know, go. And then when you get there, like, the entire process is like first year associate, second year associate. Like, you could be Obama and still take you seven years to be a partner, right? It's not about your meritocratic skills. It's about kind of that kind of hierarchy and rigidness and kind of moving up a predetermined ladder, right? But I think that is breaking at points in law, Especially things around technology, because obviously older people understand technology. We started a legal tech company. We're advising chief legal officers on their contracting who had been practicing law longer than we've been alive. And, you know, they were hanging out every words while we were still students, right? Because we knew about this AI and how it's going to completely, radically transform the practice of law, even though we were younger, right? And I think there's other domains like this, like crypto, Law, right, where there's all these things happening where it actually behooves you to be younger in the space, right? If you, like I said before, actually kind of diving in and engaging with these things and even things like space law, right? Where there's just like not that much space laws out there. So I don't care if you've been it for 20 years. I can read those 50 pages too and like, catch up and like, you know, talk that. to you from that perspective. So, yeah, I, I think think about as your young lawyers opportunities where your skill sets might be able to position you outside of that traditional hierarchy.
1: That is such good advice. I just love that perspective and I really appreciate you. So thank you so much, Maymay, for coming on No Straight Path. It has been really enlightening. And now I'm going to go read about crypto, possibly.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Ashley. Have a great weekend.
1: You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, The Highs, The Lows, and The Lessons Learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find no straight path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.